Okay, could we turn please to Philippians chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 2. I think I mentioned Sunday that I may be dealing with uh, the Wisdom of Solomon book a little bit during the midweek, but I think I'm not going to fool with that right now. I have some more pressing issues. Your turn to Philippians 1, actually 27. This is going to bring us back to the farm where this was taught originally. Let's take a couple moments of preparation. Father, open our eyes, the eyes of our heart, that we may understand and receive insight from the word of truth and the word of your grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. One thing I want you to be aware of, which is not really my topic tonight, is that who and what Paul is, is nearly as important as what he wrote, as his epistles themselves, because as Christ is the eschatological Adam, the last Adam, and the single inclusive representative, we've called him the new regnant man of the new creation, the new humanity. Paul is, to use a pretty long theological terminology, he is the paradigmatic eschatological anthropos. He's the paradigm of the, this is what I do for eschatology, of the e-anthropos. There is Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam, but then there is Paul, who is the paradigm of the eschatological human being, who has been crucified with Christ and nevertheless lives, and who lives this life in, its every, in our everyday existence. We have to be aware of this, that in our everyday existence, we live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, and Paul... Just get used to that term. It's kind of um, might maybe a little uh, theological. But he is the paradigmatic, that is the paradigm of, eschatological anthropos or human being. And it's interesting that he is as a pattern or a paradigm for all of the new humanity that... God was pleased to reveal his son to him while he was at the height of Adamic ontology. And this has something to do with being justified, rectified as some call it, but better, even delivered or liberated by the faithfulness of the Son of God. I want to approach it from a little different angle tonight. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. These texts need to be robustly engaged if you're really going to grasp them and really be able to obey what Paul is saying here. Philippians 127, only conduct your lives. Please notice my expanded translation as colonial citizen soldiers of heaven. He has this word, if you remember it, from the farm, polichu oh my. And it's related to the word polichuma, which means citizenship found in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. You are citizenship, your citizenship, palatuma or polichuma, is in heaven. And so when it uses the verbal form of polichuma, palatuomai, it's referring to conducting oneself as a 
citizen soldier of heaven. I say colonial citizen soldiers of heaven because though we're not in the place called heaven, we are on earth and citizens of heaven. That all began with Mark Antony and his rebellion against Caesar or Octavius. And after that war was won by Octavius, he allowed Mark Antony's rebellious soldiers not, they were not allowed to come back into the mainland of Italy, but they were allowed to have colonial settlements away from Italy and therefore have a colonial citizenship. And so that was kind of a gracious thing to do. But Paul applied that whole thing to our colonial citizenship. And because this is a military metaphor, he's talking about colonial citizen soldiers of heaven. So only conduct your lives as colonial citizen soldiers of heaven. In brackets, I have confer or CF with 320 that gives the rationale for this expanded translation. In a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We are, in fact, urged and mandated and then provided for to do it, live worthily of the gospel of Christ. In order that, Paul says, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you. That is a sit rep, a situation report. I will hear a sit rep about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one soul fighting shoulder to shoulder for the faithfulness that the gospel elicits. The faith of the gospel is the faithfulness that the gospel elicits or creates. The gospel creates fidelity in the hearers. And what I want you to understand, and this is one of our main points to understand, Paul no more shows a, let me use a new word, another word. Just I need new words to teach new doctrines. It's just impossible to teach without a new vocabulary. And so we'll use the word antinomy, which is a presentation of two opposites or two principles. And this is what I also call a dialectic of contradictories, which we have both in Romans and in Galatians. The antinomy or the presentation of two contradicting principles, Paul no more presents an antinomy of law versus works or justification by works of the law versus justification by faith, he does not present this as an antinomy. And that's what the justification theory proposes. Paul is not all about showing the opposites of justification by faith versus justification by the works of the law. Paul never says that we are justified or liberated or delivered by the works of the law, but he also never says that we are justified by our personal faith in Christ. And this takes a lot of engagement of the text to demonstrate that the famous texts which we have looked at before, but I want you to hear this until you grasp it so that you can obey this mandate and move forward with the faithfulness of the gospel of Christ. The pistis Christu phrase, which is used by Paul throughout, 
if it's defined as the subjective genitive, which the, the texts and the context demand pretty much that translation, then we're dealing with the faithfulness of Christ. So the antinomy that's in Paul's epistles, especially Romans and Galatians, in fact, really only in those two, the presentation of contradictory principles is justification by the works of the law versus deliverance by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The opposite isn't faith versus works, but the faithfulness of Christ versus works. The justification theory, which is sometimes called the Lutheran view of this, unfairly, because Luther wasn't all the way there with this, but is that God, that we are justified or given righteousness through our personal faith. And that is not the faithfulness that the gospel expounds. If we're going to move out and advance as a phalanx of citizen soldiers of heaven, it's not going to be with that gospel. It's a compromised gospel. In fact, it indicates a catastrophe of biblical misinterpretation in the past few centuries. We don't want to be part of it. So only conduct your lives as colonial citizens, soldiers of heaven, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, in order that whether I come and see you, Paul says, or remain absent, I will hear about you. That is a situation report. He was writing to both supervisors and deacons at that church, and he'll get a report from one of them, that you are standing firm, or from Timothy, in one spirit and with one soul, fighting shoulder to shoulder for the faithfulness that the gospel elicits. And the point here is that the message, which is called the gospel, the message elicits the faith. The message produces the faith. As Romans 10:17 says, so then faith is elicited from what is heard, or it comes from hearing. And what is heard is the gospel of Christ. So the translation from the Greek, so then faith, Romans 10:17, is elicited from what is heard, we could even say that it's created or brought about from what is heard. And by what is heard is meant the word of Christ, another word for the gospel, rhema to Christu. Paul no more teaches that justification, and I like what Lou Martin says, it's a slightly better. He calls it a rectification, but it really is a liberation, that, that, as we've been teaching, justification. Paul, no, But let's use justification just for the sake of using justification and the familiar term that it is. Paul no more teaches the justification or salvation given as a response to a person's faith as he teaches that deliverance is granted as a response to a person's works. Let me say it this way. Paul does not teach that God delivers or justifies on the basis of a person's faith any more than he teaches that God responds to the works of the law with justification. Neither of those things is the gospel according to Paul. The faithfulness of the gospel or the faith of the gospel that Philippians 1.27 is talking about is really kind of explained. We might go into this tomorrow night in Philippians one twenty nine. It has been given to us, charizomai, which means given as a grace privilege to believe in Christ. It is given to us to believe in Christ, and not only to believe in him, but to also 
suffer for his sake. It's a martyrological identification with him. So I'll say that one more time. Paul no more teaches that justification is given as a response to a person's faith than he teaches that deliverance is granted as a response to a person's works. So the, the contrast that's been shown ever since the Reformation and even before in some of the Augustinian times and thereafter, the antipathy between or the antinomy between faith and works is a false antipathy or a false antinomy, let's say, a false contradiction. Because God justifies wholly and completely on the basis of the fidelity of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the second man, as he's called, and the eschatological Adam. Paul is extremely important to us, not just because of what he wrote, but because of who and what he is. He is the paradigm of the new eschatological person in Christ, who is not Christ, of course. He is the paradigm. He says it in so many words in 1 Timothy 1.16, as he says, I am an example of those who will be participating in faith in the future. So I hope you're getting this. It's not an antinomy of works versus faith in Paul's epistles, especially Romans and Galatians, but of works of the law versus the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the one who died in the faithful execution of the Father's intent and the Father's initiative. His obedience was to the Father's intent, and the Father's intent is to summarize everything in Christ Jesus and to the Father's initiative, which began with the Father loving the world so much that he gives his Son. So you see, it's impossible to live our lives worthily of the gospel if we don't have the gospel to walk in or conduct our lives in. If we think that it's a matter of an imputation of righteousness from God as a sort of a reward for our personal belief, then that's not the gospel. So we're really not even advancing shoulder to shoulder as citizen soldiers for the faithfulness of the gospel or the faithfulness that the gospel elicits. We're doing something else. And you can call it Christian if you want, but that's just your choice. It's not Christian. To live our lives worthily of the gospel is to live out our everyday existence knowing that we were crucified with Christ, that it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And Paul is the paradigmatic eschatological anthropos, human being in that regard in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And yet we live, that we still live, in the flesh, which means it's another way of saying we live our everyday existence in these mortal bodies in and by the faithfulness of the Son of God, the faithfulness of the Son of God, Galatians 2.20, who loved us. That was the ultimate demonstration of his fidelity. He loved us and gave himself over to death for us. That's an interpretive translation. Paul is qualified to exhort the church at Philippi as he is 
qualified to exhort the church in New Kensington in the 21st century. He is qualified because he is the paradigm of the eschatological anthropos in Christ. Even as Christ is the new regnant man, which we taught in the Gospel of John, regnant, not pregnant, regnant, the new regnant man, the new reigning human. Paul is the paradigm of the man or the human being in Christ. That's why he says, follow me as I follow Christ in Philippians 3.17 in 1 Corinthians 11.1. He's speaking about himself, and he knows this, that he is a paradigm of the eschatological human being, which he calls in 2 Corinthians 12.2, a man in Christ, a human being in Christ. That's what you are. You are a human being in Christ, not in the first Adam, in the second Adam. So to conduct our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is to live in accordance with the truth of this gospel, the truth that there is no discrimination in God's love and in Christ's love. The love of Christ, Paul says, has now controls me. Because I have thus determined, I have determined that if one died for all, then all died. And so there was an epistemological crisis, so a new way of knowing entered into Paul's being. I know no man after the flesh, even though I even knew Christ once that way. I know him that way no more. For if any person is in Christ... There's an altogether new creation with old things having passed away, old associations with Adam passed away, old enslavements to sin passed away, old bondage to death and the fear of death gone, the new creation. So to conduct our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is to live in accordance with the truth of the gospel. The truth that there's no discrimination in Christ's love. It is to do what Paul did, therefore, in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He allowed himself to be mastered by God's love, by Christ's love for all humankind. To conduct our lives worthily of the gospel is to live in the faithfulness that the gospel elicits or produces, or brings forth, or creates. And that is a participation in the fidelity of the Son of God. Now, to illustrate this, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul confronts Peter, which he calls Kepha in the Aramaic. Paul almost always refers to him, except in a few occasions, as Kepha or Cephas, as we pronounce it. Cephas, which Aramaic is Kepha. Kepha. I guess today if you were going to call someone Kepha, you'd call him Kiefer or something like that. But Cephas, Paul explains why he confronted Cephas or Peter in Antioch, which was a church of mixed Jews and Gentiles. The church in Jerusalem was almost all Jews probably was all Jewish Christians. 
The church in Antioch was a mix of church of pagan Christians and Jewish Christians, and therefore this conflict happened there. The Galatian churches were only pagans. They were only Gentiles. And among them were certain teachers that were misleading them. They were Jewish Christian teachers. They were not non-Christians, and Paul didn't tell them to go to hell when he said, let them be anathema. There's something entirely, something else is going on there. So he explains why he confronted Peter at Antioch, and I'm pretty much going to paraphrase or tell the story, and it starts in Galatians 2.11. It was because Peter, also known as Cephas, and Barnabas, Paul's previous partner, and they split, and it wasn't a friendly split. You ought to know that that goes on even in the apostolic ministry. There are splits between people. People are people. We're still people. Barnabas and many others went along with Peter. As you know the story, most of you know. That includes that Paul then directly confronted Peter, and he said, I did this in front of them all. That means he did it in front of the church at Antioch. He did it in front of Peter and Barnabas and those who followed him. And he did it in front of representatives sent down from the Jerusalem church, which whom Peter was afraid of. He was afraid. The fear of man is a snare. If you want to conform your gospel to the gospel that men preach because you're afraid of men, you're snared. You're, you're useless. You're not a slave of Christ any longer. You're a slave of people. It's a terrible thing, the fear of man. Or for some, I guess it's the fear of losing a salary or fear of losing a title or fear of losing prestige in a certain denomination or church or affiliation in which loyalty is commanded for a man or a movement rather than the man Christ Jesus. So it was because Peter and Barnabas and many other Jewish Christians who were following them sycophantically, apparently, had withdrawn from table fellowship, which had been going on for some time in Antioch, where Peter lived happily, we might say, the Jewish people might say, goyly, like a goy, like a goyim, like a pagan, like a heathen. He lived happily like a Gentile, as far as not having to demand the kosher food laws of Torah, which became representative of something far greater here. So, He had withdrawn from that habit of eating and fellowshipping and even having the Eucharist together with Gentile Christians because of the food laws of the Torah, which James was pretty much all about for a while. I I would be very critical of James, the author of James, at certain points in his Christian experience. Not at the end, perhaps, but at certain points he was tried to write an epistle about the kosher laws and that people should, the Christians should, or the new pagan Christians should adhere to them. And so Paul, Peter got intimidated by those visitors from Jerusalem. Paul watched this happening. He observed it and he let it be observed long enough to know that it was the real thing. He didn't make an allegation of somebody doing something without evidence, which gets you into a hot, lot of hot water. He watched the evidence right before his eyes of this dissimulation, of this hypocrisy. 
And that's why he confronted Peter. But as soon as he confronted him, he also put his arm right around him, as it says in Galatians 2. He says, you and I, we're Jews by nature. We're not like these pagan sinners, but we know some things, including we know that we are justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and not the works of the law. So it goes on. He says, look, if you're living like a Gentile and you've been doing this all this time, then why now are you going to start making Gentiles live like they're Jews? That's hypocrisy. And I'm paraphrasing the story here in Galatians 2.11. So Paul said, what did he say? I confronted Peter in front of them all because they were not walking straight. Orthopodeo. They were not walking straight according to the truth of the gospel. You see, they weren't living worthily of the gospel. The, what indicated it wasn't that Peter was preaching another gospel. He was living according to another gospel, which is the false gospel that was being accepted in Galatians through certain Jewish Christian teachers. These Jewish Christian teachers did understand the Messiah's death, but they accepted that Messiah's death for Jews And if Gentiles were going to be accepted by God, they had to basically become Jews by adherence, first of all, the males to circumcision, and then the following of the law, the works of the law. And that was a terrible, terrible misreading of the gospel. It's almost as terrible. In fact, it is, I think it's slightly more terrible than interpreting Paul's gospel as a justification by faith alone, rather than Christ's faithfulness now there's something that'll get you in hot water but come on in the water's fine this is a truth of the gospel that he was deviating from a truth that had torn down a dividing wall between jews and gentiles as we know from ephesians two twelve to 14 Paul, Peter wasn't walking according to the truth, which had torn down a dividing wall between Jews and non-Jews. So it wasn't a matter of preaching the gospel, but of living in line with the truth of the gospel, which recognizes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. So Peter was violating the gospel by his actions, by not living worthily of the gospel, by not having table fellowship with the Gentiles. The love of Christ and his self-giving was for all humankind, not just for Jews and only for Gentiles if they adhere to the Torah, beginning with circumcision. Acts 15.1, that's what the Jerusalem Council was all about. And Peter should know better because the false Jewish Christian preachers were saying that a person must be circumcised, a Gentile must be circumcised in order to be saved. And Peter said, we believe, in Acts 15, 9 through 11, we believe that we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, even as they are, just as they are. The grace of our Lord Jesus is another way of saying his self-giving which was the climactic action of his faithfulness, faithful unto death. In fact, we could actually translate the faithfulness of the Son of God as his faithful death, the faithful death of the Son of God, 
because we not only participate in his faithfulness, but we have been crucified with him. And therefore, we are part of his faithful death. So it wasn't a matter of Peter not preaching the gospel, but of not living in line with the truth of the gospel, which recognized no distinction between Jew and Gentile. So the love of Christ and his self-giving, as Paul gets to in Galatians 2.20, was for all humankind and not just for Jews and only for Gentiles if they choose to adhere to Torah, beginning with circumcision. So to further elucidate, Paul recounts that he said directly to Peter in front of them, if you as a Jew, in verse 14, and this is the thrust of the matter, this is the heart of the matter, if you as a Jew are really living as a Gentile, and he had been, and not like a Jew, why are you compelling the Gentiles to live like Jews? At this point, Paul is doing a double-layered kind of a thing. He's still recalling what he said to Peter. But this epistle is being read and performed in front of the Galatian church. And guess who else is there? That's right, the Jewish Christian teachers that were demanding circumcision. So Paul was saying what he said to Peter by recalling that, he's saying through his letter to the Jewish Christian teachers there, why are you compelling these Gentiles to live like Jews. And the, compel, the word compelling is used here, coercion. He then continues speaking, therefore, but on two levels. While recalling his rebuke of Peter in Antioch, he goes on as if he's still speaking with Peter, but he's also speaking to the Jewish Christian teachers in Galatia who were compelling the Galatians to be circumcised. And this is where we get to probably one of the most important passages in all of Paul's epistles. And it's very, now people say it's difficult. I don't say it's difficult unless it's difficult. This is a difficult passage. It's very difficult. But I want to try to iron it out a little bit and unravel it. He's still talking in verse 15, and he's still recalling what he said to Peter. Here's where he immediately puts his arm around Peter and says, we are Jews by nature. So he was gentle. He became gentle after this, his searing rebuke. We are Jews by nature. That means you and I, Cephas, but it also means you and these Jewish Christian teachers. We are Jews by nature. And that already sets up the fact that you aren't a Jew just by nature or by natural inheritance but through the fidelity of the Son of God. So we are Jews by nature and not pagan sinners. He's being a little ironic and sarcastic here. We're not pagan sinners. Knowing, however, that no human being is rectified, let's use that instead of justified, from the source of law works. Rectified is J. Lewis Martin's term, which I think is a little better educated than justified, but still not the best. He said that no human being is rectified from the source of law works, but through the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah. You look at your English translations, and if you have the Bible works, I still got Bible works seven. I'm a little behind the eight ball with that, but it's enough for me. If you look at the 92 translations that I have, and dozens of them are English translations, almost all of them say here, faith in Jesus Christ rather than faithfulness of 
Jesus the Messiah, which I believe to be the correct translation. I'm going to show you this, show you a few of these translations in a minute. Knowing, however, that no human being is rectified from the source of law works, Paul quotes, or really he alludes to Psalm 143.2, which is in the Septuagint, Psalm 142.2, which says literally, all flesh shall not be rectified in your sight. Paul makes two changes to that in order to accommodate it to his argument. He says, no flesh, no human being can be justified or set right or delivered from sin and death by works, doing works according to the law. And so look how 16 reads, knowing, however, that no human being is rectified from the source of law works, but through the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, here's where it gets difficult. And he says, and we believed in Jesus. That's one of the few times where Paul actually says this a human act of faith going on here toward Jesus Christ. But here's the difficult part. We, even we believed in Jesus Christ in order that the source of our deliverance is the faithfulness of Christ and not the works of the law. Again, the antinomy that Paul presents is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ versus the works of the law. But it seems to say here that we believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by the faithfulness of Christ, but that does not make syntactical sense. So let me just read it, and that's show you how difficult it is. Knowing, however, that no human being is rectified from the source of law works, but through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. Then he says, and we, you and me, Peter, and you Christian Jewish teachers, Jewish Christian teachers, We believed in Jesus Christ in order that the source of our deliverance is the faithfulness of Christ. And that's ek pistios Christu, ek pistios, which is a, the word ek is a preposition of source. And then it says, and not the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being, no flesh, Jew or Gentile will be delivered. Again, that's a quotation or an allusion to a verse that literally says all flesh will not be delivered or rectified from law works as a source he adds what is missed here often is that Paul is not setting up an antinomy between justification by works and justification by faith in fact to grasp the sense of this this is how I translated Galatians 2 16 knowing however that no human being is rectified from the source of law works, but through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. And we believed in Jesus Christ in order, and the sense is here, to acknowledge, in order to acknowledge that the source of our deliverance is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. In other words, our faith is a participation in his faithfulness, which is a sign that we have been Delivered or rectified or justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Faith comes after salvation. It's not what leads to salvation. It's a gift from God to the saved. It doesn't make sense if he says, we believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That doesn't make sense at all. 
That's like taking your faith and making it go back to make Jesus' faithfulness result from your faith. That's not what he's saying. I wish this was, I almost want to say Paul, call Paul and say, why didn't you just make that easier to translate? And he's probably laughing and saying, because I love to watch you squirm in the pulpit. I don't know, something like that. But I'm going to explain it now further. What is often missed here is that Paul is not setting up an antinomy between justification by works and justification by faith, but rather an antinomy or a dialectic of contradictories of the works of the law versus the faithfulness of Messiah Jesus, which he's going to go on to explain in Galatians 3, 15 to 29 in connection with Romans 4, that faithfulness of Messiah Jesus is that upon which the promise to Abraham for all his seed is based. So what Paul is saying to Cephas and the Jewish Christian teachers that are sitting there while this epistle is being read performatively by a preacher who knows Paul and even can reproduce his cadences and his rhythm of speech and his actions, maybe even his physical Attributes are reproduced here. The Jewish Christian teachers are sitting in the audience and getting addressed directly by Paul in what he said to Peter, then telling them, you're not living according to the truth of the gospel and you're making Gentiles live like Jews and that's not God's will. You're coercing. So what Paul is saying to Cephas and to Jewish Christian teachers is that they're believing in Messiah was a demonstration that Messiah's faithfulness is the means of their deliverance and not their works in conformity with Torah. I previously translated this before, and it might have been troubling. I previously translated Galatians 2.15 to 16, and I'll admit to you, I stretched the syntax. The reason I stretched the syntax is not to make it fit my view but to try to give the sense over and against what I think is a false translation. But, so I'm, I'm defending that right now. In Galatians 2.15, again, uh, this is how I translated it when I dealt with this before in this series. We, that's you and I, Peter, and you and I, you Christian Jewish teachers, are Jews by nature and not pagan sinners. And we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Yeshua, the Messiah. And with reference to Messiah Jesus, we believe that we are justified by the faithfulness of Messiah and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified, meaning Jew or Gentile. Now, someone may object and say that this translation is too much of a syntactical stretch, and it is a syntactical stretch. I concede that I did stretch the syntax, but it's because in Nehemiah 8.8, those who teach the word are supposed to give the sense that's there. And the sense is not that we are justified by faith in Christ, but that we are justified by justified by the faithfulness of Christ and our belief in Jesus Christ is a gifted participation with his faithfulness after we're saved or perhaps immediately upon being saved. 
Now, if you think that my syntactical stretch is a problem, let's look at, let me read to you the New American Standard 95 version of Galatians 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, I don't agree with that translation. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. So we believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ is what this says. That's a stretch of the syntax. And not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. The New International Version follows just like Barnabas followed Peter. Galatians 2.16, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ. And not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. The New King James says it this way, almost the same. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. How about the New Revised Standard Version? We know that a person is justified... Or it says, yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, and not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. I think these English and American translations have a misleading syntax. There's a misleading syntax because they do not recognize what the context demands and which Paul's overall meaning of the fidelity of Christ means in all of his epistles, most notably Romans and Galatians. We have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ should be understood, especially if we're consistent with ek pistios Christu, as the faithfulness of Christ. And that word ek pistios means as the faithfulness of Christ as the source. In other words, our personal believing in Jesus Christ is believing that we are justified by the faithfulness of Christ. Our believing in Jesus Christ does not justify us. Our believing in Christ is believing that his faithfulness justified us. That's what Paul is saying. We are believing. And that's what frees us, because if I believed I was justified by faith, I would wonder if I believed enough. I would wonder if my faith was strong. I would wonder what would happen if I stopped believing. And then preachers are always around to say, if you stop believing, you stop being saved. Or maybe you didn't believe heartily enough or sincerely enough. If it's based on my faith, then I'm in trouble. If a future declaration of faith on me in an eschatological day of final judgment rests upon my faith, I have no assurance whatsoever. But if it rests upon the faithfulness of Jesus Christ or his faithful death for me, I'm, I'm free. I'm liberated. I'm assured. I have the assurance of things hoped for. I have a conviction of things not seen. 
I have an awareness of Christ enthroned at the right hand of the Father and me being in him. It's a very different story. So it should be better understood here, not faith in Christ, but the faithfulness of Christ. So again, to give the sense, which is probably more difficult in this verse than in any other verse, to give the sense of what Paul is saying is, we, you and I, we have already believed in Jesus Christ And that acknowledges that the source of our rectification or our justification or our deliverance was the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So our believing in him is a gifted participation with his faithfulness, which is the reason why we were justified. He's saying that to these Jewish Christian teachers. You know this, then why are you doing something different here? Why are you now presenting that you're justified by the works of the law to these poor Galatian pagan Celts? These Celtic people, the Boston Celtics. So the phrase ek pistios Christu indicates both source and means. The source of our justification is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The means of our justification is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Our faith as a human act is not the means, even the instrumental means of our salvation. It is a way to say that we believe. In other words, my faith now is I am justified, I am rectified, I am liberated, transformed, placed in Christ by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's my faith. That's the faith of the gospel. I can move forward with that in a phalanx, shoulder to shoulder with other believers right now. It's a very small beginning. But there is a phalanx, and it's moving forward, and it's intimidating the opponents of this gospel, according to Philippians 1.28, which we'll get into tomorrow night. They are intimidated by your lack of fearfulness. And that includes superhuman principalities and powers. Remember what they said when they saw Jesus? Have you come to torment us before the time? To which he replied, shut up. Mainly because you're picturing God and his representative in the human representative, Jesus Christ, as someone who delights in torturing his creatures. So shut up. Preachers who say you're going to perish in hell and God's going to torment you forever. I say to them, shut up. In fact, I'd probably say, shut the hell up. Who called you to the ministry? I don't think it was God. And if it was, he's ashamed of the gospel that you're preaching. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. It's the power of salvation. Hope, thankfully, there's a little bit of movement in these translations. We believed in Christ not to be justified, but we believed in Christ who justified us by his faithfulness and not by the works of the law. Again, our faith in Christ is a participation in his faithfulness, which Paul later says, I live by or in the faithfulness of the Son of God. I live rather than die because of his faithfulness. But I also live within the sphere of his fidelity. It becomes my participation in his fidelity. That's what carries us through the endurance of many sufferings and afflictions in this life until we get to be with him. In fairness to the Christian Standard Bible, which is my favorite translation that hasn't been fixed yet, has 
or by the faithfulness of Christ in its notes. It says faith in Christ, but then it says or by the faithfulness of Christ. For both instances of pistios Christu, whether dia pistios or ek pistios, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, whom I salute, has the notes that say or this. They're finding out that the trend is moving toward the subjective genitive and rightly so. Not only that, the net, the New English translation, which is still in formation, also recognizes this as a possibility in its notes, and it goes pretty long-winded to express that. The Christian or the complete Jewish Bible, edited by David Stern, which I'm more and more impressed with, reads this way. Galatians 2.16, even so, we have come to realize that a person is not declared righteous by God on the ground of his legalistic observance of Torah commands, but through the Messiah, Yeshua's trusting faithfulness. Thank you, Mr. Stern. Very good. I'll read it again. The Christian, or it's not Christian, it's complete. The CJB is how it's written in my Bible works, but it's the complete Jewish Bible. Even so... We have come, says verse 16 in Galatians, to realize that a person is not declared righteous. That's not really what justification is, but that's another, another matter. By God, on the ground of his legalistic observance of Torah commands, but through the Messiah, Yeshua's trusting faithfulness. And that's exactly how Paul would be talking to these Jewish Christian teachers. Yeshua's faithfulness. Therefore, we too have put our trust in Messiah Yeshua, he goes on to say, and become faithful to him in order that we might be declared righteous on the ground of Messiah's trusting faithfulness and not on the ground of our legalistic observance of Torah commands. For on the ground of legalistic observance of Torah commands, no one will be declared righteous. Still, as good as that is on Messiah's faithfulness, it still doesn't get the point or bring across the point that our believing in him doesn't result in our justification by his faithfulness, but it merely acknowledges our justification by his faithfulness. That's the faithfulness of the gospel, and that's why the Holy Spirit woke me up this morning with Philippians 1.27 when I was going to go somewhere else, and I said, how does this work? And I don't want to say God spoke to me in an audible voice, but it was sort of like my the spirit of truth is a friend, and he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and he says, approach it from this way and see how it works, and we'll do that again tomorrow night, maybe. So this translation gets the true antinomy between law works and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, but it's still unclear. In almost all translations, including this one, how can we be justified by the faithfulness of Messiah Jesus and yet believe in order to be justified by the faithfulness of Jesus? That's a syntactical problem, which I'm trying to fix. And I haven't fixed it entirely yet, but I'm just trying to show you what I go through. This is why I'm half crazy and on the way to being all crazy. Much study hath made thee mad, said a person to Paul once. It's not that at all. I enjoy it, but it's a fight. It's a fight. And I love the fight. It's an arena. It's a contention. It's a fight. And we're going together on that fight. We're advancing together. So the idea conveyed is that our faith in Jesus Christ is faith that we were justified 
by his faithfulness. To believe in order to be justified by the faithfulness of Jesus is the same as believing in Jesus to be justified. And so it doesn't make sense there. But the sense of this verse is not that we believe so that Christ's faithfulness will justify us. Think of that. It makes your brain hurt. That can't be the case. And that's what a lot of translations are saying. We believe in Christ so that we may be justified by his faithfulness should be rather we believe. Yes, we believe in Jesus Christ. We have placed our trust in Jesus Christ, which is an acknowledgement and a mark of the fact that we have been justified by his faithful death. Paul goes on to explain that again in Galatians 2.20 by saying, I was crucified with Christ. That's another way of saying I was justified by his faithfulness, his faithful death for me, and included in it. So to believe in order to be justified by the faithfulness of Jesus is the same as believing in Jesus to be justified, and that's not what Paul is teaching. Therefore... The sense of this verse, which is the hardest verse I've ever had to give the sense for, is not that we believe so that Christ's faithfulness, which was already executed in A.D. 30, will now be made to justify me. That's not what he's saying. But that our believing or our faith in Jesus Christ shows that we were justified by his faithfulness. Our faith is a participation in Messiah's fidelity. Or as Paul goes on to say, I was crucified with Messiah and I live by and in the faithfulness of the Son of God. So pretend you just came into this message and didn't go through all that rigorous and robust engagement with the text where I humiliated myself in front of you by being beaten up by the text. It's like that guy eating bacon in the back of his truck and the bacon starts slapping him up side the face let's just say it this way it all comes down to this we don't believe in Jesus to be saved or to have God respond with salvation we believe that we have been saved by grace and through Christ's fidelity what that is that's the faith of the gospel now that we have the faith of the gospel maybe we can move out shoulder to shoulder and intimidate the intimidators. We should not fear principalities and powers. We should recognize that principalities and powers fear us once we've got this down. They're afraid because of their demise. The demise, though, what they don't understand is their demise is not an eternal torment, but a transformation by the grace of God to reflect their original design and the restoration of all things. It's something to fear. They fear it wrongly. That's why Jesus said, shut up. I'm not coming here now or in the future to torment you, whom I created. You guys screwed up royally, but I'm not going to send you to hell forever. I like, again, I, I keep relating to Moltmann's phrase, the punishment of evildoers is transformation by grace. When you're a God of unlimited benevolence that's how you judge that's what you do you judge salvifically and no other way 
So, in fact, that faith is the assurance that we are in Christ. It's a giftedness. It's a gift of faith. And tomorrow I'm going to show you that there's another kind of a gift of faith that's only given to certain ones. There is a gift of fidelity given to all, but there is a supra, supernatural and extraordinary gift of faith in, read it, 1 Corinthians 12, 8, 9, that's given to one or another, one here, one there, one here, one there, but it's not for them, it's for the whole church. So that faith is the marker that we are in him. This is the basis for our living worthily of the gospel. It is participating together in his fidelity, which is the fidelity that's elicited by the gospel. That's why I say, though my earlier translation may stretch the syntax, it still gets closer to the sense than these English and American translations. Now, one more, I have two minutes, and I want to introduce something that's in part an answer to a question I recently received. There's one thing I remember from Lewis Berry Chafer's systematic theology that sticks out more than anything else in those eight volumes, which I read years and years ago, and it's this, and I'm paraphrasing slightly. He said, the whole world is under the aegis of the cross. The whole world is under the protection, we could say, of the cross. Unfortunately, he didn't work out the implications of this statement in the direction of God's great intention to restore all things and to sum up everything in Christ. But he did make that statement. And now I stand in awe that he didn't follow up as to what that means. The whole world and all of humanity is under the aegis of the cross of Christ. So when a baby comes into this world, that baby is born under the protective aegis of the cross of Christ. It does not mean that that baby was born into Christ. We have to be born Again, and there is a moment of transfer from being in the Adamic ontology to being in Christ. There's a moment of transfer. It isn't when we believe, it's when the Holy Spirit incorporates us into Christ. And then being saved, he gives us faith. There is a moment when, and it's no more a matter of our free will. It is not our free will. The gospel isn't a matter of our free will. The gospel is a matter of the freeing of our will. Our will isn't even free until we're in Christ. But there is a place, there is a moment of transfer from our being in Adam to our being in Christ. Every person lives a little bit of time or a lot of time in the Adamic ontology before being transferred into Christ and being liberated. And that's an apocalyptic moment in a person's life. It may be a very quiet moment. Someone may even realize, hey, I believe that I'm saved by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which is an indicator that that apocalyptic moment has happened to you. And so every baby born into this world is under the protective aegis of the cross of Christ. But there's still a time when a person must be transferred. Now, there has to be a transfer. And here's the question. 
Well, it has to happen in this life according to tradition. If it doesn't happen in this life and you die without making, without having that apocalyptic moment, you'll never have that apocalyptic moment. Who says that? Who said that? Who told you that you were naked? God said to Adam and Eve. Who told you that? Who made you have to? Why are you putting on these fig leaves? Because somebody told you you were naked. Who told you you can't have that apocalyptic moment after death? It does say Jesus Christ went and preached to the dead souls in Hades. And they must have heard him. And if they heard him, they had to believe. Because those who hear the voice of the Son of God will live. These are questions that I have now. I guess I'm going to have to take tomorrow night to do it. And I just realized I've only been through two pages of notes here tonight. And I have four. And the last two pages are much longer. Well, Father, we do thank you tonight, though, that perhaps all of us tonight here can rest in the assurance that we have been liberated and delivered, or we could even say saved, by the faithfulness of Messiah Jesus. And we have believed in him. We have believed in him. Not in order to be justified, but in order to acknowledge that the source of our justification is Christ's own fidelity. And what a great privilege it is, Father, for us to participate in that fidelity, to live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. We thank you for that privilege.